there and welcome to the Bold Love Podcast with Pastor Bob Roberts Jr., where we highlight the uncommon journeys of bridge builders and peacemakers that are living out their faith in the public square by boldly loving their neighbor and working together to build resilient communities. Our goal here on the Bold Love Podcast is to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly, to learn how to better love your neighbor, and to learn how to relate to others despite differences without compromising your faith. And we are incredibly delighted that you have come across our little podcast today. And we hope that you have the chance to hear kind of all of our on-demand insightful conversations from season one and season two as well. So we encourage you to browse our episodes and take a listen to ones that you are interested in. But today, this is our final episode of season two. And our guest is author and filmmaker, Phil Vischer. He has had such a significant impact on American culture uh, with his groundbreaking children's series, Veggie Tales. And then just at the peak of his success, everything turned upside down on him. An over-aggressive expansion coupled with a lawsuit from a distributor who forced Phil's company into bankruptcy. So Phil lost his company and his characters from Veggie Tales and his dream. But rather Rather than losing hope, Phil found himself in a ministry he never expected, a ministry to anyone who has lost a dream. So since then, Phil has detailed this dramatic rise and fall of his dream in his book, Me, Myself, and Bob, along with launching another children's series called What's in the Bible. And he actually has a top Christian podcast called The Holy Post Podcast. You can actually hear Pastor Bob being interviewed on The Holy Post Podcast as well, which is a must listen if you haven't heard it. So go back and take a listen to that. So Pastor Bob and Phil hit on their interconnected history, issues going on in church and in culture, the re-emerging of puppets, according to Phil, systematized evangelism, and a let's predict the future game. That's such a mutt's listen. It's rich with wisdom, fun, and laughter. So you'll get a kick out of it today. But before we dive into this extremely funny and entertaining interview, we would like to ask you a favor. Like most podcasts, we are able to make these impactful conversations happen with the support of partnering organizations along with individuals like you. So if you felt led to support the conversations that we're having here on Bold Love, you can do so now and give at support.com boldlovepodcast.com. Whether it's a single gift or a monthly donation, we are so thankful for you and you listening and you supporting. And actually, the very first five monthly donors will receive a special gift from Pastor Bob. So you can hit up support.boldlovepodcast.com and give there, and we would greatly appreciate it. But now I want to go ahead and welcome in the host of the Bold Love Podcast for his interview with Phil Vischard, Pastor Bob Roberts Jr. I am so excited to be with the Phil Vischer, Mr. Veggie Tales. Now, I got to be honest with you, Phil. I didn't get into Veggie Tales. Yeah, you have no idea what it is, or you actually did try it and you despise it. Which one? I'm 63, and it was uh, after my time. And then my yeah. kids are in their mid 30s, so they just slid past it. But being a pastor, I had all these people come up telling me that I was Bob the Tomato. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. So was was that a good guy, Bob the Tomato? Was that a good guy? Wow. You are really in the dark, fella. That was the ho- I, I, he was the I'm, host of the show. He was Oh, 
Yeah, he he's my doppelganger. He's my uh, yeah. He's my uh, frustrated Mister Rogers that lives inside of me. Frustrated because he can't make his show go as seamlessly as Mister Rogers could always make his show go. So oh, that's yeah. cool. Well, I have watched a few. I've got grandkids, and uh, they've gotten into some of it. So hey, hey, I'm curious. Do those figures? Do they describe family members, personal experiences? Can we understand the psychology of Phil Vischer when we watch VeggieTales? Uh, you can definitely get insights into it. Yes. my uh, Larry the Cucumber is voiced by my friend, Mike Naraki, who is very Larry the Cucumber. And uh, I'm the voice of Bob the Tomato, who is, and I'm very Bob the Tomato. So yeah, so Mike is, is very freewheeling, just, kind of goofy, loving, you know, but someone described him as kind of just bouncing through life like a balloon. And then they described me as my whole life comes down to one sharp point. So I'm like an arrow on mission to do whatever it is that I want to do, you know, and they thought that just the fact that we were best friends was so bizarre because we were so different. But that was the two main characters in the show, Bob and Larry. So did you grow up drawing uh, potatoes and celery? And no. So, no. so how, what happened in your formative years that made no. you get into your vegetables? Or was it a psychological thing? Your mom saying, you got to no. eat these things. And, no. and it's resentment to your mom. That's yeah. what it's all about. Keep going. Keep going. You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. <laughs> getting edible. Um, no. So I, uh, well, I, I just drew whatever. I'm not a fantastic illustrator, so I had a hard time drawing complicated things, but that's actually not the reason. The reason is that I was a computer animator in Chicago in the late 1980s when computer animation was just getting going and I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to come up with characters that I could use to tell stories, but they couldn't be complex because the computer couldn't handle it. So I needed really simple characters. So I started playing around with a candy bar character. I thought he's cute. Kids like candy. Sure. That could work. And then I just got married and my wife walked by and saw the candy bar on the computer screen and said, you know, moms are going to be mad if you make their kids fall in love with candy bars. And I thought, oh, that's a good point. Okay, what wouldn't moms be mad about their kids falling in love with that's shaped kind of like a candy bar? And the next thing that popped into my head was a cucumber. So I made a cucumber, did a uh, uh, like a 60 second test called Mr. Cuke's screen test and went around showing that to Christian publishers looking for money for two years unsuccessfully. And, that, and that's how VeggieTales started. Well, I'm curious about your formative years. What kind of home did you grow up in? Um, it was green, uh, split level. <laughs> my, so, my metaphor for money. Were y'all rich? Were no, you? no, it was actually painted green. Oh. Um, my great grandfather on my mother's side was the first non-denominational radio preacher in America. Uh, uh -uh. Went on the radio in 1923 in Omaha, Nebraska uh, and preached every Sunday morning until he died in 1963, at which point his radio show was the oldest, longest running radio show in the country. So he well, was. Wait, wait a minute. What was his name? R.R. Brown. Wow. So if, if you've ever read uh, Dallas Willard's uh, The Divine Conspiracy, yeah. and you open it up to the dedication page, there are five names on the dedication page. One of them is R.R. R. Brown with just the note under it that in those days there were giants in the land because uh, Dallas Willard was slain in the spirit in college by R.R. R. Brown, uh, my great grandfather. And, and uh, uh, Billy Graham had a turning point in his ministry uh, when my great grandfather laid hands on him and prayed for him 
uh, back in the fifties. So, so he knew everybody. My uh, okay. Then, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We got to yeah. talk about this. Everybody knows about Veggie Tales. Nobody knows about this. Yeah. So uh, Dallas Willard's my hero, man. Did you know him? Um, I had an ice cream cone with him very late in life because he came to the Bible conference in Northwest Iowa that was started by my great grandfather, kind of, you know, not because he wanted to travel to Northwest Iowa, but because he decided he should go there once kind of to honor my, my great grandfather. So my mom and I took him out for ice cream and we got to spend a little time together. Have you read his book, Divine Conspiracy? Of course. It rocked my world, redefined my faith. Sometimes deep down as a Baptist, I think that's when I really found Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I knew nothing about the kingdom of God. I right. just knew you got to get them dunked and dropped and into heaven and right. move on to somebody else and suck it up till you die. Yeah, you I've been, I've the been, whole thing for me. I've been trying to figure this out, like, you know, because I grew up in a small town, uh, small evangelical free church in, in Muscatine, Iowa, because my grandfather on my father's side was an executive at the world's largest retreader of tires, which was headquartered in Muscatine, Iowa. So that's where I grew up. And, you know, it was a very small town, small church environment where the gospel has been, you know, kind of pared down to just the essence of John 3.16. And that's all you need to know. That's all you need to learn. There is no theology beyond that. And, and your whole job in life is to go tell other people that, yeah. you know, and then and then uh, uh, collect their souls like scalps and then return home where it's safe. Good you old know? Baptist. Good old Baptist. That's <laughs> we how were Baptist. Raised. We were EV, EV free. But um, that was you, still you were raised in the EV free church. Uh, actually, uh, no, we went to one and I was because we that was the closest church we could find to our denomination. See, um, my uh, we were in the, the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, so, my oh, great man, you're messing with me now. I love that denomination. Yes. Yeah, so my great grandfather was uh, also friends with A.B. Simpson saying uh -huh. it. Was Staying at his funeral. No. Yeah. was a music leader for him at uh, at conferences. So A.B. Simpson has rocked my world. Wow. OK. And I'm, all not, roads, I'm not kidding you. All roads lead back to my great grandfather then because he connects Dallas Willard to A.B. Simpson and, and Billy Graham, among other people. So, so uh, what, what my, I love about what I love about CMA, uh, yes. Christian Missionary Alliance, they're the guys who go into Vietnam and I've worked there for 30 years almost. And they started the first uh, churches in the early 1900s in Vietnam. And they are some of the most incredible people. Yep. And uh, the largest evangelical churches in Vietnam are CMA churches. So you want you want one more thing that might just okay, I've got it. blow your mind a little bit. R. R. Brown fought in the Vietnam War. No, he didn't. Yeah, well, I'm I, just I, trying to build links, man. No, no. I thought you were Googling him. I was like, no, no. that's that's not it. Uh, you found another R.R. Brown. Go to my dad's side of the family. Okay, that's my mom's side of the family. My dad's side of the family, my great-grandfather, Harry Philip Vischer. Philip is me. Uh, uh, Roger is my middle name. That was the middle name of R.R. Brown. Philip was the middle name of my paternal great-grandfather. He went to a CMA church in Toledo, Ohio in the 19... Uh, 20s and was was uh, in charge of the the pastoral search committee in the 1920s at this little church and the pastor they called uh, that he called to the pulpit there was A.W. Tozer. Um, oh no. <laughs> 
<laughs> my so, word, Bill. So my, my paternal great-grandfather called A.W. Tozer to the pastorate in Toledo before he then moved to Chicago and then spent the rest of his ministry there. So we were very good friends as a family uh, with the Tozers. They would come to the Bible conference in Iowa quite regularly. So now you can connect Tozer, Graham, Willard. They all go through um, my family. And my mother, this, this gets even better. And this is where it gets weird. Okay. So my mother has a memory. I mean, she sang on the radio live when she was five years old. She was singing a solo live on the radio, uh, being, no, she was playing the piano, accompanying her little brother who was singing a solo at the age of three. So I kind of grew up in a, in a ministry showbiz family where, you know, it's like, okay, are you, do you love Jesus? Good. Do you look good on stage? How's your voice? Let's check your voice. Can you sing? Can you play an instrument? What can you do for the kingdom? Because we need you to be productive. Can we put you on the radio? Can we put you up in front of a Bible conference? Come on, man. Don't just sit there. Do something valuable. So that was there was that underlying uh, tendency, and which is part of actually my own story and, and how I both did what I did and, and got in trouble, you know, do, theologically doing what I did. Um, but my mother has a memory when she was, she thinks, seven or eight years old of sitting on the couch in her grandparents' home. On one side of her is Bob Jones Jr. On the other side of her is Bob Jones Sr. Sitting in between the two of them as a six-year-old little girl in Omaha, Nebraska, because they were coming to pay kind of pay homage to my great-grandfather uh, at some point in the, I don't know, 50s, 40s, sometime. So Tozer impacted my life dramatically because my dad pastored First Baptist Lindale when I grew up. And uh, a guy named David Wilkerson moved to town. and and. Pentecostal guy, but he went to my dad's church because my dad's a phenomenal expositor. And with him came Keith Green and Dallas Holm and uh, Leonard Ravenhill. So I've got tons of books Ravenhill gave me before he died. My dad preached his funeral, but he got me into Tozer and all that. Phil, we need to hang out sometime and talk about some of this. So, dude, you were impacted by several spiritual giants, and the best you can do is vegetables? Come on, man. I mean, I'm sitting here scratching my head. Where's the... You know, I mean, I know I've, I have a great uncle, uh, actually, the, the, the husband of a great aunt. So a great uncle in law, I guess, who was the first uh, European to enter a whole section of Erie and Jaya as a pioneering missionary in the 1930s and, and brought the gospel to cannibals. I have his book accounting. So I grew up, you know, um, uh, Nate Saint um, and his wife were at the, the, um, uh, the Bible conference in Iowa the summer before they went uh, on their mission, you know, when, when he wow. was killed. So, so we have video where we have old film footage, you know, of the saints hanging out at the Bible conference six months before uh, Nate was killed. So that's just, that is in my DNA is this whole world of who's doing what for Jesus. How's it going? What's the impact? How big is it? And so so I grew up with these stories of like, you know, this, your, your great uncle was, was hacking his way through the jungle in Erie and Jaya to bring the Bible to people who wanted to eat him. What are you doing for Jesus? You know, and it's like, I don't want to do that. I don't, I'm shy. I'm, I'm introverted. I'm creative. I don't want a machete in my hand. I want a puppet. You know, I like the Muppets. I like Star Wars. I like animation. I don't like strangers. I don't know how I fit. 
in this picture. And so it was, uh, you know, Veggie Tales was basically me saying, how can I use the things I actually enjoy to do something that would make my, you know, grandparents and great grandparents say, okay, he's one of the good ones. How could I win the approval of my family of origin as a shy kid who'd really rather not ever leave the basement? Boy, Phil, this is an incredible conversation. Uh, I can identify. And, and it's just started. It I know, just I know, started. I know, I know, but I didn't know any of this. So, like, I get it because I would preach youth revivals growing up. My dad was a preacher. He had all his preacher buddies. Well, I love humor. So when I'd go preach, I'd have everybody cracking up. And they'd get on to me, Bobby Jean, what are you doing? You know, it's fine, everybody right. laughing, but you got to get down to it. Right. And for them, getting down to it was screaming and hollering. Yeah, get down, to, get down to brass tacks. Get That's to, right. You was, know, that the, was that the gospel? Was hollering the gospel? Oh, yeah. Okay. If you couldn't holler, I, I remember one time a preacher threw me his coat. It was sweaty. He said, son, until you can do a coat like this, you've not preached. So that was the culture I grew up in. Okay. It was, it was rough because I didn't, I did not fit. And yeah. so I'd go and I'd just talk to people from my heart. I'd read a passage of scripture. I'd explain it. I'd use humor. And the places would fill up, but you know, Bobby Jean, you're compromising the gospel. You got to be hard. It don't count. You know, you're if you can't spiritually kick butts for Jesus, you're not, you're not, you're not doing it right. Pulling them in for the wrong reason, fella. But I, I think here's the thing. I think maybe it was that there was a seriousness of life that they were coming out of from the 1800s, uh, from from even right. two world wars. I've, I've tried to go back and reflect. What was it? about that generation, let's say from the early 1900s to about 1960, that 60-year yep. period. Yep. What was it about that 60-year period that was really good and what really sucked? Well, let me give you an, an anecdote because um, I've kind of wrestled with that too. So my great uncle, a guy who went off to Irian Jaya, left his wife and his three young daughters behind to go do that. Didn't leave his wife like I'm running off with. He, he ran off with Jesus. <laughs> Basically, he went to the mission field. It wasn't safe to bring them along. So he just left them behind. Um, he came, finally got back, I don't know, five, six years later, um, just before World War II, walked up to his house in, in California and his oldest or his, his youngest daughter was playing outside and didn't recognize him and just ran inside and said, mom, there's a man out here. Had no idea it was her father. He was that absent a figure. And so in his book, and that's something I'd wrestled with, like, how could you? And when, when it was finally safe enough to bring his wife over, he had uh, two girls at home at that point. And he asked, uh, they were both uh, like middle schoolers, asked my grandfather if, if they could just raise them, if my grandfather. So my grandfather raised, you know, his uh, two nieces and he just said, yes, he didn't, he didn't even ask my grandmother, literally did not ask my grandmother, just said, you're doing God's work. You're doing Jesus work. That's important. We'll raise your kids, take your wife you know, go to Yuri and Jaya again. Uh, he's writing about it in his book. And he, and he says, how could I do that? You know, how, cause I didn't want to leave my family. I didn't want to leave my kids. Um, but then I looked around and saw all the young men that were going off to war and leaving everything behind for their country. And I thought, how could I do any less for my King? So is very wow. specifically the wartime attitude, World War One, World War II, look what men have to sacrifice for country. 
how could we do any less for Jesus uh, that that led to, you know, I, mean, I had all these because I, I, I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, and and after we left Muscatine, Iowa. And so it was a constant it's a constant stream of missionaries and missionary kids cycling in and out of Wheaton, Illinois, especially if you're in the CMA, Christian Missionary yeah, Alliance Church right. in Wheaton, Illinois. So my youth group was always full of furloughing missionary kids. And so many of them were so messed up. You know, because they they would just get shuffled between um, uh, boarding schools, you know, and watch their parents leave again, parents leave again, parents leave again, and it just seeing the toll of of this, you know, kind of, we have to sacrifice everything for Jesus, which includes sacrificing our own children, you know. So I I kind of grew up with a, a a a very healthy suspicion of the way we were doing missions because I was the generation of the kids. And I was watching those kids struggle with identity, struggle with love, struggle with the sense of Jesus asked my parents to abandon me. What do I do with that? And that was that's really tough. I think you're right. I think. uh, And I saw that growing up. I mean, to be honest with you, my wife and I, uh, when we went to seminary, we prepared to be missionaries. And I went to Fuller Seminary to get get my doctor's degree there because that was our dream. And it didn't happen. Uh, she'd been in some car accidents and there were some health issues. They said we'd have to have all these surgeries our whole life, which she didn't. So my tribe wouldn't appoint me. But it was the best thing in the world that ever happened to us. And one of my dreams, Phil, is to redefine how the Western church does missions in the 21st century. I think it's broke. I think it's broke for many reasons. I think it's broke because we make missionaries to be heroes and they're just they're not. And I think it's broke because we fail to understand everybody's a missionary. And we live in an age when people can engage in the world like never before. And we don't have to get into all that. But my life has changed radically. I understood the Great Commission and I understood missions. I did not understand the world. And our church wound up working in Vietnam because a high official uh, their child accepted Christ mm-hmm. through a fluke. And that child wanted to be baptized. So I had to literally get on a plane and go ask that parent. And the next thing you know, I'm meeting all these government ministers and everything else. And we've mobilized thousands of people, done a couple of hundred projects, uh, spent millions of dollars. But it's our church members using their job in the broader society. And I'm doing that all over the world. Now, you talked about how you know, what are you going to do? You got to do it a certain way. I I was raised in that too. Well, I'm working with communists. I mean, I I get, I get the commie award, you know, about five years ago. I can't celebrate that with everybody. You know, my tribe's going to kill me, but it's the friendship medal given from the government. You know, Uh, you know, I remember one of my relatives, Bobby Jean, what'd you get that award for? Well, what are you doing with those communists? You telling them about Jesus? You know, it's as if you don't get a Bible in front of them and scream at them in a pulpit, you're not doing missions. Yeah. Well, I have to, I have to remember my grandparents' generation because my grandparents' generation was really the Bill Bright uh, generation for spiritual laws generation. And, and one of Bill Bright's, you know, I, I don't know if he said this his whole life or just once, and then people didn't forget it. But if, if you're talking with, to someone for more than seven seconds, you should mention Jesus. 
Mm. You know, if you're talking with someone and more than seven seconds have gone by and you haven't directed the conversation to Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And that's, you know, that, that was that generation. And, and I think there's something, I don't think it's a mistake that the same generation produced Bill Bright and Ray Kroc. You know, I don't think it's a mistake that we produced uh, systematized conversion and systematized hamburger production. I'm with you. At the same time, post-World War II America, we were systematizing everything. We can get this down to a science through, you know, American enterprise, American ingenuity, and we can evangelize everyone everywhere. We can turn, you know, jungles into farmland. We can turn swamps into cities. We can turn heat than countries into Christian countries. Um, all it takes is the right system, the right method, you know, and that's, we're still kind of reaping the, 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 uh, the downside of trying to systematize a relationship with Jesus. I'm told all the time they're closed countries. You can't be friends with these people and you got to, you know, use platforms, sneak in, say you're doing one thing, but doing something else. It's not true, Phil. There's no nation in the world that's closed to the gospel. They're closed to our church industry. For God's sakes, I'm a Baptist preacher. I'm in Doha last week, meeting with their government, meeting with pastors and imams. So the imams didn't think they could ever go visit a church. The pastors didn't think they could go visit a mosque. We had a big big meeting, and we're going to have a big event here in about a year where they're going to go visit one another's place of worship. These are evangelicals. Hmm. And, you know, their response is, Bob, how in the world do, do you relate to people like this? Because we have the idea, you know, we've it's got to be with your tribe and the church industry. Uh, this next year, we have grants from different uh, foundations. We'll be in Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Sudan, Nigeria, the West Bank, all over the world. And we can't respond to all of them. And I'm not going there because they're downloading my sermons. I give them Matt Chandler. They download Matt's. I'm, I'm going there because I've become friends of people. And we wind up talking, people say, yeah, you can't share the gospel. What are you talking about? Uh, Matt Carter teaches at, uh, was uh, pastor at Austin Stone, now Sagemont in Houston, little church of, of uh, 10,000. Matt went with me a couple of years ago to Uzbekistan. And Matt was always, you know, Roberts, what is this you're doing and stuff? And so I was busy leading the conference and building bridges between the pastors and imams and, and, uh, uh, I, the next morning we were getting up and I saw Matt and I said, Matt, you doing okay? Man, he teared up. I said, what's wrong? He said, I've never shared the gospel this much in my life. And he said, Bob, they're asking me questions. It's not like I bring Jesus up. They want to know who is Jesus and what do I believe and why am I here and how does it affect? And what breaks my heart, Phil, is the world is ready for the gospel. They're just not ready for our religious industry. And, and we're, we're, we're missing a moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I get to preach in mosques and synagogues and occasionally a Baptist church. And it's just tragic to me that the world is waiting, but we have Ray Crocked the gospel. Right. People are looking for more than a Big Mac. You know, right. right. And and assuming that the same Big Mac that works in Southern California will work in Singapore, will work in Malaysia, will work in Russia, because it's so much easier to just crank out more Big Macs than it is to, you know, to disciple people. We don't understand people. We want to reach the world, but we don't want to mess with people. 
Yeah. Give me your system, but not your relationship. I don't really like to mess with people either. That's why I was in the basement with puppets. <laughs> so that's something that I, that's my own cross to bear is that I'm really not that social, but I need to be more, you know, so yeah, I like, cause every, every time we have a new uh, children's director at our church, they say, Hey, you're the VeggieTales guy. Why don't you come and teach Sunday school? I like, I love kids in the abstract. I cannot handle a room full of third graders. I don't have that gifting. You know? <laughs> so I, so, I love talking to kids one-on-one. -on -one, and then I love making things for kids. I cannot conduct a room full of six-year-olds. So feel cognizant of the fact you're not N.T. Wright and I'm not Dallas Willard. Yeah. What's Thanks. wrong with the church in America? No, I feel. I mean, bad. what what's going on? The church. I'm sorry. I, I mean, you're wonderful. You're Phil Vischer. You're Mr. Veggie Tales. I don't have any cartoons. So what's what's going on? Why is the church so screwed up? I mean, race and and you know yeah. we're all fighting over. It. I, I'm lost. Yeah. Well, first we have to back up and say, you know, what do you mean when you say the church? Because quite often when we say the church, what we mean is the white evangelical church. You know, so if that's what we mean, then let's be specific. You know, uh, let's be specific. What's wrong with the white evangelical church? What's going in on in the white yeah, evangelical church? What's the church? deal? Um, we had a lot of power. Uh, we had a lot of influence. We had a lot of social cachet. We had a lot of political power. We were, you know, from... I mean, the Great Awakening through, you know, at least the 1930s, 1920s, we were the most influential demographic in, in shaping America. And, you know, and that kind of broke with the uh, modernist fundamentalist controversy. And, you know, when when Princeton and, and Union seminaries turned on us fundamentalists and we kind of became, you know, outcasts to, to a certain degree socially, um, we became resentful. So then we were people who had power, who felt resentful that they no longer had as much power as they used to. And that cre and then when you, when you wrap into the fact that, that so much of conservative Christianity um, is based in the part of America that was also the home of chattel slavery and a plantation economy. So hey, you Yankee, don't mess with, don't mess with yeah, this Texan. Yeah. So, I mean, I would love it if the, if the Bible heartland was New York City, you know, if the Bible heartland was Chicago, downtown Chicago. I grew up in Iowa and I felt like this is pretty Bible belt buckly, you know, everyone I know is a Christian, but then we moved to Chicago and I started working in video production in advertising in Chicago. It's like, I went from, you know, I don't know anyone who doesn't go to church to, I don't know anyone who does go to church. So that gave me a really clear picture of, okay, not you know, my church upbringing is not, quote unquote, America. It was a part of America. But if I'd grown up in Fort Worth, if I'd grown up in, you know, parts of parts of the South, I even if I'd gone from rural Georgia to Atlanta to work in post-production, it's way more Christian in Atlanta than it is in Chicago, even in the creative, you know, industries. So you can still kind of sustain that feeling. And that was one of the problems is you could sustain the feeling that that America was and is supposed to be a very Christian place. And then when it starts to change, you get resentful. And when you get resentful, you start to you, you start to do. I forget who is explaining this. You start to uh, try to achieve kingdom ends with worldly means. 
you don't use kingdom new creation means to get to new creation ends. And when you use old creation means to, to try to accomplish new creation ends, it's disastrous. It's good, you know, Phil. If you try to use political power to achieve what the kingdom of God is supposed to achieve, it's disastrous every time. And so we're kind of we're kind of stuck there in between new creation and old creation, and we've muddled them together horribly. Well, Southern Baptists are having a big argument. They would disagree with you. They would say wokeness is destroying our country and that it's Marxist. Well, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? I don't really. I'm so tired of talking about that or trying to explain, you know, I've been called woke so many times because I made a video about race and that we should actually care about racial justice in our country. And and don't you think we have to fix CRT first? If we fix critical race theory, then we can love black people. And 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 we got to get the order right, don't we? Whenever you tell a Christian that critical race theory is destroying the church, the first thing that Christian has to do is turn to someone next to them and say, what, what is critical race theory? I don't know. I have no, I never heard of it because you have no idea what we're talking about. It's like, we don't know. We don't know what we're talking about. It's become a catch-all for every liberal thing I dislike that I see talked about, you know, in my, my news stream, my, my Facebook feed. So I don't like, I made a race video. I never used the words white privilege. I never used the words systemic racism. Not in, I've made three race videos now, three videos on race in America. Never used those terms. I've never used critical race theory. I have a hard time defining critical race theory. I'm not a student of critical race theory. I don't know any students of critical race theory. Even the most radical Christian uh, black activists I know who say, no, I've never studied critical race theory and I'm not sure I can define it. So we got, we got really- Makes it the perfect straw man, doesn't it? Yes. We got really uncomfortable comfortable during the George Floyd thing with how much of the country was running to the side suddenly of we need to do something about this problem. We need to do something about this problem. And, you know, so there were certain parts of our own community that said, I'm uncomfortable. I need to figure out how to put the brakes on this because I don't like where this is going. Um, and critical race theory ended up being the perfect, you know, it, it's it's what we did with, with Martin Luther King. We said he's too radical. He's probably a communist. And and he's he's uh, undermining law and order. You know, so if we we're had to such, come up with ways to ignore him. If we're such Bible believing, Jesus loving people, I would think we would be beside MLK. And I would think we, we would be there with Floyd. What's wrong with our we gospel beside MLK? I know. Bob. So so why? What what's what what did we do? I mean, what happened to this gospel that we don't love people and well, help there the were, least? There were Christians marching with MLK. They weren't the fundamentalists. And, and my tradition and your tradition are both from fundamentalist Christianity in America. We're on the fundamentalist side of the modernist fundamentalist controversy. Some of the more and, and because of that split, it was such a huge deal in American religion, um, social justice became something that liberal Christians do. Preaching the gospel and holding to inerrancy is what conservative Christians do. So fundamentalists are all about the Bible and the presentation of the gospel. Uh, and, and we decided if, if the liberals now think that, that reforming society is the most important thing, then we don't want anything to do with that. Because the liberals are also, you know, throwing away the, the deity of Christ. They're throwing away the virgin birth. They're throwing away the inerrancy of scripture. So we're going to lump all this together. 
if you don't believe the Bible is true, you probably also think reforming society is the most important thing for a Christian to do. And because we reject that, we're going to reject the whole package. So we really became packaged Christians. And, and we see that even today where, you know, Christians, uh, conservative white Christians are the most likely religious group to believe immigration should be cut by 50 percent. Well, how is that biblical? Well, it's not, but it's part of a package. It's part of a package that we've accepted. If you're pro-life, you have to be anti-immigrant. What? What? Where? So, and, and it's the same thing on the other side. You know, if you're, if you're pro-social justice, you probably need to be pro-choice. What? How did those get packaged together? So we become, and, and that's one of the things that I stress on our podcast is, you know, I want to offend both sides. I want to offend both <laughs> sides because I'm not trying to be liberal or conservative. I'm trying to be biblical. And There's something be, in the middle, isn't there? Or different? It's it's different. Yes, I wouldn't yes, say it's, it's in the middle. Yes, it's not necessarily in the middle. The middle right. position is not necessarily the right position. I hear you. Uh, but starting from love of neighbor and working towards, you know, the the creation mandate, work for flourishing, work for human flourishing. If we're working for human flourishing, it means we're going to advocate for some policies that are called conservative and other policies that are called liberal. And everyone's going to be mad at us for not lining up in the bucket that we're supposed to be in. And that's okay. So I want to throw a couple of other illnesses I think the church has. Yes. Just, you respond to them. Okay. Uh, consumerism. Religious Great. consumerism. Love it. Why'd you like to buy a stuffed Bob the tomato? Uh, <laughs> Would you autograph it for me and take a picture? <laughs> I went for extra. I'll $5. put it up in our foyer and then we'll sell them on T-shirts. Yo, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Right next to your coffee shop. You have yeah, a coffee my coffee shop, shop and my right? new book that's coming out next month. Yeah, I mean, it was, I don't really know what's, you know, Sky Jatani wrote a whole book on consumer Christianity. He's, he, he can, he can go off on that much more than I can. We just, uh, we think that if, if it's capitalist, it's Christian. And that was part of, you know, the Cold War. It was part of the legacy of Billy Graham and, you know, Christian, God, godly America must unify against godless communism. Since godless communism is socialist and godly America is capitalist, it means that capitalism is godly and any other form, economic form is godless. So, and you still see that in the, today in the CRT. They is that you're Marxists. You're Marxists under yeah. there and you just want to promote socialist policies, which are against God's will because God is a capitalist. So it's it's the America, it's the American dream mixed up with the Protestant work ethic, mixed up with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we can't separate them out anymore. I think it was the soul from which the prosperity gospel grew. Absolutely. Now, a lot of Baptist megachurch pastors would disagree with that because it was just the gospel, but the packaging became everything. We have the best, this and that. I mean, right. who went to church for the sake of Jesus and the people? Give me a really good show. Take care of my kids, you know. So I got I got really uncomfortable getting a tour of Liberty University's campus about 10 years ago when I spoke at a convocation there. And everywhere we went, they were saying, now this one of these, this is the biggest one of these in, in the state, you know, and we have the best one of these in a three county region. And this is the only one of these of any Christian, you know, and I just kept coming away with why, who felt they needed to impress everyone 
to feel okay about themselves. You know, there, there's, there's something that we got into this kind of arms race of, I want to be impressive in the metrics that the world finds impressive. And it's book sales, it's record sales, it's church attendance. It's, you know, I don't know how many countries you've been to and your frequent flyer miles. It's, you know, we're looking to keep score. We all want to know where we score. How do I compare? What's the rank of your podcast? I don't know. Mine, I went up two slots this week. So that's pretty good. I just passed Joyce Meyer. Yay. We're, 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 again, we're trying to accomplish kingdom means with kingdom ends with worldly means. And it's just, it's toxic to my soul. So third illness. So racism, yeah. consumerism. Boy, this is going to be a tough one. You ready? Oh, I'm out. Let's all look at the time. Christian celebrityism. Oh yeah. I, uh, hmm. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Oh, I trust Tom Hanks and Joyce Meyer. I, yeah. I mean, <laughs> we, there, In that order. There's something valuable about trusting, finding a voice that you trust. You know, I mean, that's not a bad thing. Like you're talking about Dallas Willard. You trust Dallas Willard. He's a yeah. little, you know, if a million people trust Dallas Willard, whether he likes it or not, he's a little bit of a celebrity now. Yeah. But when, when it turns upside down is when Christian publishers measure the viability of a new author based on the size of their social media platform, not, you know, their character. Um, or their message. Or their message. No, what, no, because it's a business. There's it's so a, many crappy Christian books out there. Have you ever noticed that? No, I try to avoid the crappy ones. I just read yours. See, I, I, I knew you'd say that. Yeah. But there are, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I've got a Muslim buddy. He's got me reading Augustine and asking me these really hard questions. He had zero social media platform. Augustine? I yeah. I don't even know how you can trust him. He's an evangelical Catholic. <laughs> no, I'm teasing. I don't know. I don't know. What, what else do you see that's ailing the church? I mean, I, I don't know where political power. I look at the politicization of the church. Yeah. You know, evangelicals well, think, and Republicans. But I think a lot of that goes back to what you said earlier. It's about power and control. Yeah. And it's about the sense that even though, you know, America was never supposed to have a civic religion, we did have a civic yeah. religion. And, it, and it's, why, it's why my little church in Muscatine, Iowa had a Christian flag on one side of the platform and an American flag on the other side of the platform, because there was still that sense, you know, and you go way back to the, you know, the, the colonial days, the, the church building was also the civic center of the town, because it was the only town where everyone could fit inside. It was the only building in town where everyone could fit inside. So, you know, you're doing city business uh, or community business also inside the church. You know, and there's just this this kind of crossing of those streams that it especially post World War II, when America became started to reconceive of herself as, you know, the policeman of the world and the savior of the world. Um, especially against communism, you know, that it really got convoluted and we have to put the flag in the church to show that this is what America is. And we're in competition with Satan's government system, you know, which is the Soviet Union. So it got real. I was just looking at uh, Ryan Burge, the sociologist, you know, just put out figures that show the, the age group that has stopped self-identifying as evangelical the most over the last 12 years is people that were born between 1945 and 1949. 
Wow, that's and some of the oldest people we have are the ones that have dropped uh, using born again or evangelical as a self-identifier. And I was trying to figure out how that could be. And what occurred to me is that people that were born in that time period were in their mid 30s in the early 80s when the notion when the religious right, you know, when that identity was the strongest. Yeah. So, they were the most likely to grow up in that we are born again and we are evangelical. And then as it started to fade, they actually started at the highest point and have fallen the most, whereas others were never, you know, I mean, how many 20-year-olds have ever identified them as born again? I'm born again. That was an 80s thing. We don't do that anymore. So, it's just interesting to see um, how American identity was wrapped up with certain names and evangelicalism and, and being a born again Christian were a huge part of American identity starting about 1975, 1976 and going through about 1990 and then have been slowly fading ever since. And that fading creates a knee jerk reaction, you know, among older conservatives to say, we're losing the country. We're losing the country. We have to fight to get God back into fill in the blank, you know, Starbucks. And, and the wherever. sad thing when we've done that, We've wound up putting somebody else on the throne other than Jesus. Yeah. And I feel like the result is we are being played by politicians big time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, be we're being played by products, politicians, preachers, and hate. And I mean, we can build this whole religion, but just don't take... Jesus serious. I mean, if you take the serious stuff about loving your enemy and for God's sakes, don't read Ephesians and Galatians because no male, no female, no bond, no free. I mean, the gospel is the equalizer. And parts, parts of the Bible can really mess up your faith. It can. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Phil. So, so what do you see for the future of the church? Uh, I, I think the, uh, I, I think Sky was interviewing Dallas Willard once late in life and talking about some of this stuff and, and just said, so are you worried about the future of the church? He said, of course not. Never worried about the future of the church. It's, it's God's church. It's Jesus' church. You know, that God will do what he's going to do. Uh, now, different manifestations of the church at different times in different cultures will ebb and flow. You know, and I, I think we're headed into a pretty serious ebb in the white conservative church in America. But I think our non-white brothers and sisters may more than make up for that, you know, and, and to be able to divorce civic religion from biblical Christianity is in everybody's best interest. Good thing. And if it means a lot fewer people self-identify as evangelical or born again or whatever, I think that's a, a tiny price to pay to actually have people walking around carrying the name of Jesus who also carry the smell of Jesus, yeah. not just the name. You don't. And that's man, I see it so much on social media. You're carrying the name of Jesus. You don't smell like Jesus. What's going on here? Um, and so if because it's, if it's socially beneficial to claim the name of Jesus in your community, Everybody will claim the name of Jesus. Once it is no longer socially beneficial, then you can say, okay, let's just put this away. Claim the name of Jesus if you're willing to count the cost and you actually smell like Jesus. Um, and then the world can actually get a fresh look. And this was something that, that uh, Dallas Willard talked about is people have despised Jesus because they don't know Jesus because they have no familiarity with the teachings of Jesus. If you can clear away all the crap, just say, hey, can I reintroduce you to this guy named Jesus? He said some pretty amazing things. So when I think about that, I think about the fact 
and the implication that the church is exploding around the world. And you're right, the non-Anglo church in America is also growing. Here's what happened. Think about it. That World War I, World War II generation that led to the biggest movement of missionaries in the world because they wanted the whole world to hear about the gospel and the gospel was going to equalize everybody. It happened. It's just we got equalized and we've lost our spot in the world and we don't know how to be equal with everybody else. Is that what we really wanted or did we really want Jesus to come back? I think we really wanted Jesus to come back and we had to preach to every nation, tribe and tongue before he would come back. And it was partly eschatologically driven more than gospel driven. But here's the point. Yes. Willard is right. I I tweeted the other day. There's going to be fire and pruning and everything out, everything else. And it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Right. Because it's going to cause the good thing to come back, to come up the way that it needs to become. What, What fights against it is legacy ministry. Because we've built these huge organizations, we've built huge churches, we've built huge parachurch organizations, and the parachurch organization was one of the biggest uh, contributions or markers of evangelicalism post-World War II. We have these huge organizations that live on donors, uh, trustees, schools that live on alumni, and and major donors, and uh, the desire to preserve the institution because, well, oh, look, we employ 110 people. You know, you don't want this to go away, do you? So that's the cost that we have to count is, are you willing for there to be half as many Christian colleges that there are today? Are you willing for there to be half as many healthy churches as there are today? Half as many publishing houses as there are today? And until we can say, if it, if it gives people, if it gives our culture a clearer healthier interaction with the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, I'm okay with that. You're going for real. (laughs) No sweet and low in you. (laughs) Well, I was just thinking about Rick Warren announcing that he's looking for a replacement and retiring. You know, uh, just last week made that announcement. And the first question you have to ask is, okay, does this ministry, was it built around the personality of Rick Warren? Because there are a lot of ministries that are, a lot of mega churches that really are. You know, what is Willow Creek without Bill Hybels? Is it really a thing? I don't know. What is Saddleback without Rick Warren? Is it really a thing? You know, what was what was the Crystal Cathedral without Robert Schuler? It wasn't anything. You know, so you know, so when when is it the responsible thing for a board? to say, rather than looking for a replacement, should we talk about winding this down or turning over our assets to another organization that's in a different part of their life cycle? And we never want to do that because we think all organizations, all institutions should be eternal and should still be here in the same size building when Jesus comes back and says, good job. You paid the rent and kept the lights on for 485 years. We're very proud of you whatever the institution is. So it's like we're, we're more attached to institutions sometimes than we are to Jesus and the gospel. And sometimes the institutions have to die. All right. Let's wrap this thing up. All right. So, so you agree that you're shutting down your church next week in the name of renewal. Yeah, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. But but I'm not the senior pastor anymore and it's doing just fine. Oh, hey, that's and fantastic. I, and I, and I, and no, I it wasn't it. about you. 
Or no. are they actually doing better now? No, they're they're actually excited. They've got a sharp young pastor named Scott Venable. It's just a wonderful thing. So that's cool. That's cool. I'm not saying institutions have to die, but uh, sometimes we do terrible. I get things it. To keep institutions them alive. are about stories and values. Yes, and that's it. Yes, We've made my, them about methodology. So my, de my denomination is the home of uh, A.W. Tozer. It's also the home of Ravi Zacharias. So there is good and bad in everything. Um, and, and trying to sustain an institution, even a ministry institution, in the face of you know, having to cover up the bad behavior of your founder is never a service to the gospel. All right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have some fun okay. wrapping this up. We're okay. going to make predictions, Phil. Uh, we're going to make back and forth. We're going to one-up one another okay. on the future of the church. All right? Oh, boy. And, and, and here's the thing. It doesn't matter because even if we were the best semiotologist in the world. I don't even know what that means. That's a somebody who understands the future. Oh, okay, good. Okay, that's even if me. we were the best in the world, most of what we would say would not come true. Okay, so Great. we can make we can we can predict boldly, knowing that it will probably okay. not happen. But let's try to think what okay. we think is possible. Sure, so let's go for give it. Give me your first future prediction for the church, and I'll give you one. We'll just go back and forth. It's less white and more fun. Ooh, <laughs> fun! If you wouldn't have thrown fun in there, less white's okay, but fun—that's a hard one. Uh, I predict that the salvation of the white church is going to come from the global African church. They're going to lead the white church back to Jesus. Okay. Okay. That's good. And that sounds fun, at least better music. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, is these all have to be about the church? Nothing about. No, it can be anything. I mean, this is a, this is a okay. religious broadcast, but I have people on here that are Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and whatever. Okay. So, so what whatever. else is going to happen in the church? Um, a shrinking footprint, but a growing influence. I, that's good. I agree with that. I predict that this is really going to be a good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that your prediction? Or that's it. Oh, that's that's. Wow. I'm out of juice, man. I'm out of juice, dude. We're at the end of the podcast. So, how are you predicting? I, I don't know, man. You're but you're, you know, I'm a loud guy. You're, you you ought to be exhausted. You're an introvert. Of course, you're just looking at a screen at just one of me. That's all uh, right. Okay, I'll do another one. More puppets. More puppets. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say more puppets because we were so, you know, we were trying to be big budget. We were saying, oh, they, there used to be like consultants that would go to mega churches to say, kids are used to Disney. Here is how you can be more like Disney. Yep. Children's I've, ministry. I went to that lecture. Don't get mad at me. Yeah. You, we got to that breakout session. We need better stuff. We need Xboxes in the, in the classes, you know, in your church. We got to, you know, they're used to Disney. You got to give them Disney. It's like, you know what? No, you're never going to compete with Disney. You are never going to compete with Disney on production quality, showmanship. Uh, do you know how you can you beat Disney on relationship? You can hug a child. Okay. Ooh. Pixar can't hug a child. Disney can't hug a child. You, that's that's what that's your magic. You can show a child Jesus, and you don't need an Xbox to do that. You just actually need to smell like Jesus. So let's stop uh, lamenting our lack of budget or lack of creative production expertise. We need a new lighting seminar because our lighting techs aren't doing a very good job. And let's try to be more like Jesus because, believe it or not, that's more attractive to the next generation than good lighting. I also think here, here's a prediction. Yeah. Deep personal worship. 
I think the personal, like on your own. I do. I think Uh it's going to become more of a thing. People are hungry for slow and depth and quiet. Yeah. Quiet. Quiet is good. Quiet is hard to program though, because it's easy to do quiet badly. (laughs) And then then as another word, it's called awkward. So (laughs) to do quiet, it's easier to do loud uh, badly and get away with it than it is to do quiet badly and get away with it. So, and that's why it's, you know, it's, it's hard to do really deep conversation for kids on a video because you can't see them and you don't know if they're tracking with you. And if you've lost them, you're less likely to lose them. If you go loud, 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 bang, bang, bang. than if you say, Hey kids, let's just experience Jesus for a minute here. If you do that through video and so much of our, our even ministry to kids has gone media. So it's in an app, it's in a video, it's in on a DVD and you can't get kids to slow down on a DVD while watching a DVD because they just tune out. So that's why, again, that's what you can do in your church that Disney can't do and Pixar can't do is get kids to slow down and have an experience with God. And that's what will make them want to come back. Not your And that's from Mr. VeggieTales. Yeah, that's from a guy who gets media. Bible stories on DVDs. Okay, if you ever do a show again, I I want to be some vegetable on it. I'd be a really good vegetable. Make me a a cauliflower or something. Yeah, okay. I think that's highly unlikely to happen. (laughs) But. I do too. You're more likely to become a puppet now. Because, you know, budgets being what they are these days. Hey, Phil Vischer. This has been fun. Church Thanks. history, current church, the yeah. future of the church. I hadn't planned on talking to you about any of this. Oh, good. But I think it's good. I've had I've had fun. <laughs> See, the church is gonna be smaller but more fun. That's exactly what I said. I like it. I like it. Thank you for joining us on this fun interview with Phil Vischer and the storytelling journey with Bob Roberts Jr. And we're so excited that you joined us today. For more information on this podcast, show notes, or any references, you can go to boldlovepodcast.com. You can get all of that there. Thank you so much for joining us for season two. And we appreciate all that you've done for us. Uh, And you can also support us at support.boldlovepodcast.com. And overall, we want to encourage you, the listener, to live out your faith boldly learn how to better love your neighbor and learn how to relate to others despite your differences without compromising your faith. Thank you so much and have a blessed day.